If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like to ask that you please open them to Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11. I want to encourage you every week to bring your Bible. It's such a good thing to become familiar with the pages of your own book. I know a lot of people like to use their phone. If you want to use your phone, that's totally fine. I know for myself, I don't do that because I have a tendency toward distraction. And what typically often happens is there are notifications and text messages and random phone calls from people who forget that I'm at church and all sorts of things that come through the phone. I love having the Bible on my lap, but I also love it when you do so that you can remember and take note of what's taking place on the page. You are using multiple senses, the touch of the page and the feeling of your finger across them to examine what's taking place there. Not just your eyes and ears, but you add one more sense to that. It helps bring about memory and learning. So I encourage you, if you don't have a practice of bringing your Bible, begin bringing it and begin seeing if that assists you in learning the Word. Uh, We live now in a society that likes to consider itself progressive. Uh, However, there's an incredible irony that the same people who reject the Word of God because they claim that it is scientific are often the very same people that are drawn to the supernatural. Do you know that the fastest growing forms of spirituality in our country by percentage are Wiccan and witchcraft? Those are real statistics. Uh, For a society that claims to be moving in a progressive direction, it is very odd that there are so many picking up ancient pagan practices. And it's strange that every other TV show is based upon the premise of some kind of mystical or mythical or spiritual concept. Why are people so fascinated with the supernatural? Well, the answer is simple. The fact is, we live in a supernatural world. There are things going on outside of the scope of our vision, and our eyes are not designed to observe what is taking place in the realm of angels and demons. However, there are moments in the Scripture that the Bible teaches us and reveals to us just a small way in which the angelic and demonic realm intersects or interacts with the human experience. And today, we are going to cover one of the most wild and bizarre occasions that demons are ever mentioned in the Bible. I would ask you please follow along in God's Word, starting in chapter 19, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray. God, as we come together before this interesting and odd text, we ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom to navigate what's going on here. 
We ask that you would give us wisdom to apply what is going on here. I ask, Lord, that you would please help me to cut a straight path, that I would rightly divide the word of truth. And we ask, Lord, that uh, for anyone in the room who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that even this text would reveal to them the glories of Calvary and the wonderful mercy of Christ. And we ask for those who know you that this would be an encouragement, that you would cause us to be more and more like Jesus because of these words. Uh, Father, we thank you that these are given in your authority and by your power so that we might be transformed. And we ask today that you would do that for your sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are many things in the world that fall into the category of hit or miss. Uh, They're usually either really good or really, really, really bad, and there's no in-between. You know the things I'm talking about, like sushi, book-to-movie adaptations, the smell of the beach, French food in general, just to name a few. In my opinion, biographies are kind of like that. Uh, They are either excellent, they're engaging and captivating pictures of someone's life, or they're very dull. They're just retelling the seemingly insignificant minutia often recounted at a glacial pace. The difference between a good biographer and a bad one is not about how much they know. It's about how much they choose and what they choose to include in their book, and almost as importantly, what they choose to leave out. I've often wondered, how do you make those decisions? How do you develop the art of determining what are the most important details of someone's life? Well, the Bible, it's unique. It's unlike any other book because it has not been authored by someone who makes those decisions. It was authored by God Himself. And there is nothing superfluous in the Scripture. There is no wasted ink in your Bible. There's nothing here without value or purpose. Every last word is there for the strengthening and equipping of God's people. In the passage that we just read, Dr. Luke straight up tells us exactly what the result is of this passage. He closes by saying, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That little word, so, indicates that the way the Lord was working to prevail mightily was through all of the other things that we see happening in this passage. He is doing these things for the result of His word prevailing mightily. I think sometimes we have a tendency to come to a passage like this filled with supernatural things and react to it kind of like I would react to art at the MoMA. You kind of look at it with confusion for a moment and then you keep walking, maybe even speed up a little bit. Or you might have the opposite side of the coin where instead of moving past it quickly with confusion, you dwell on it forever. You can't stop looking at it. You just get so focused on that that you to the detriment of everything else in the text, ignore Christ. All you want to know about are these angelic and demonic beings. Well, both of those are problematic aspects of our response to the text. These events in Ephesus were a powerful part of the apostolic era as God was validating the authority and the authenticity of the apostles. And this is a powerful passage about God storming the stronghold of Satan's kingdom through the spreading of the gospel. So our approach to this text is just to consider the three main uh, scenes that are taking place here. First, the healings, then we're going to look at the exorcisms, and then the revival. Let's start with the healings. In verses 11 and 12, look at that again with me. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. 
The book of Acts is a narrative history, and one of the questions that we should be raising every time we come to one of these passages in Acts is whether Luke's intention is to be descriptive or prescriptive. Descriptive passages are there to simply recount what was taking place. It tells you what happened. Prescriptive passages are there to tell us how we are to continue to function and operate as children of God. It prescribes our actions. Well, these are people who, there are people rather, who view the words in the passage that I just read to you as prescriptive. They think that we should continue functioning like this. Uh, if you take a look at your screen here, you'll see an image of what is known as a prayer cloth. Has anyone ever heard of a prayer cloth before? Well, these derive from this passage. Uh, perhaps uh, you can still purchase these. I, I don't know. Um, this is not the one that I had initially looked up because the one that I looked up had such a terrible picture it couldn't come up here. Well, the one that I looked up, you could purchase it for $0.00 with $30 shipping. <laughs> so um, somebody's making some money there. And I, it's not USPS, I can tell you that. <laughs> Uh, what's interesting is what it says. It says, this prayer cloth is your point of contact against cancer and incurable diseases. And notice, if you can see it, I don't know if you can see it up there, it quotes Acts 19, 11 through 12. That's the exact passage that I just read to you. They're using this as a defense for why they're selling prayer cloths to keep you from getting sick. Well, is this biblical? Is this something that we are supposed to be doing? Well, this, this prayer cloth idea, you can take that away. Don't buy those. This is not new. The cult known as the Mormon Church began this practice in the 1830s, and in recent years it's primarily been carried out by far extremes of the Pentecostal movements, particularly Robert Tilton and Oral Roberts. And the question is, are they right? Is this text prescriptive or is it descriptive? Well, let me take you a few minutes to explain why I do not believe this is to be understood as normative in the church life. It is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. Here are four reasons. First, if Paul was able to heal anyone at any time by moving power out of himself and into an inanimate object, then there is no way that Paul should ever experience physical suffering or torment from Satan. Think about it. Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons that touched his own skin were being taken to random people, and when they touched them, they were healed. And now, what were these things, these handkerchiefs and aprons? Uh, the terms there are probably connected with his tent-making business. They were objects that he would wear as he was putting together these tents. These were probably items that were very important to him, and they were being given to other people in order to heal them. Well, if this healing power was something that Paul was able, able to conjure up at will and instill into physical items of clothing, then how is it that he was suffering with a thorn in his flesh that he speaks about in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Listen to how Paul describes his suffering in that passage. He says, So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, 
then I am strong. Notice in that passage, Paul pleaded with the Lord for healing. And the Lord said, no. There was no healing cloth. There was no Ephesian-style miracle spree at this point in his life. God just told Paul that he wanted him to experience suffering so that A, he would not be conceited, and that B, he would find his power in Christ alone. Clearly, Paul was not able to heal at will. Secondly, there is no healing cloth ministry performed by Paul or anyone else in any other part of the New Testament. Nor does Paul continue to function this way moving forward. It's not like he learned a new trick and began to practice it. Third, look at the way the text describes what's happening with these healings. It says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Paul is not given any credit. It was God who was doing these miracles. There is nothing in the text to even tell us how Paul was involved in sending his work clothes to other people. It's possible that this is one of those situations like the woman who approached Jesus, who was suffering with the issue of blood for 12 years, and who reached out her hand just to touch the phylacteries of his garment, the hem of his garment. She reached out to touch them and was healed by a touch. Perhaps it was kind of like that, where somebody went to his room, took his things, and it actually caused them to be healed. Now, I don't think that's probably true. I don't think he came back and was like, hey, guys, where's my stuff? Uh, only to find out later that it had been taken by somebody to heal them. The reason I don't find that likely is because it later tells us that the seven sons of Sceva knew that Paul was casting out demons in the name of Jesus, so he probably did have some agency in the process, but we literally have no idea what it was. If it was prescriptive, don't you think it would tell us how to do these things? All we are told for sure is that it was God who was doing all of the work, not Paul. And fourth and finally, here's the nail in the coffin. What was God doing by the hand of Paul? He was doing, quote, extraordinary miracles. Well, what does that mean? In Greek, the word extraordinary is actually two words. And do you know what they mean if they are literally translated? Not ordinary. That's what it means. These are not normal. These are unusual. Even for the apostolic era, this was known as something that was rare and uncommon and unusual and completely unique to this specific time and place. This is not normal, Luke says. This particular healing ministry of Paul was a powerful work of God that was specifically designed for that time and place in order to authenticate both Paul as the messenger and the gospel as his message. And you're probably saying, okay, like, I get it. Don't buy a healing cloth, stay away from faith healers, don't watch TBN. I get it. But this raises another very important question. Should we pray for people to be healed? Should we expect God to heal anyone in this day and age, or is all of this to be left behind in the apostolic era? And the simple answer is, yes, we should pray for people. Yes, God heals people, but not in the same way that things were occurring in the miracles performed by the apostles. For example, we are told in James chapter 5, verses 14 through 15, is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with, the oil, with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. There's a few differences between what is going on here in this command for us to pray for the sick and what is going on through the miracles performed by the apostles. Here are three differences that are very important. 
First, the scope is different. James does not say, pray for people who have been blind from birth to receive their sight. It does not say, pray for people who have their ear cut off to have it miraculously put back on. It does not say to pray for people who have died that they would come back to life. He says specifically, pray for those who are sick. Secondly, we are not promised that God will always heal the sick. We pray for them, but there are occasions when Paul, just like, or the Lord, just like he said to Paul, will tell us, no, somebody gets cancer. And we pray that the Lord would cause that cancer to go into remission. And the doctor says, it's terminal. You have 90 days to live. We pray that the Lord would reverse that. And the doctors say, we have nothing else we can do. We have to wash our hands of the situation. All we can do now is make you feel comfortable. We pray that God would change that. And because God is who he is, he can and sometimes does do that. And people look at that and they refer to it as a medical miracle, meaning it is something beyond the scope of what can be done by man. That happens all the time. But it also happens all the time that somebody in that exact same situation will pray and will plead with the Lord and the Lord will say, no. That is unlike the miracles because in the miracles, what takes place is instantaneous. It is immediate. There is no wait. There is no question of whether or not God has healed them. It is immediate. And when God does this and says no, He is always doing so because He has a purpose in our suffering. God is always working to cause us to be more like Him or be with Him. And so a miracle, we need to understand, is God working supernaturally through a person. Uh, prayer is God working supernaturally apart from a person. Uh, finally, we see that miracles are always performed through an individual. Uh, Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, the apostles, uh, none of them ever tag-team miracles. They never bring somebody else in on the process. James tells us that we are to pray corporately for healing. Go to the elders and ask for prayer. Go to the congregation and ask them to pray for you. On the positive side, we should be overjoyed by the fact that the Lord does care about our souls and our bodies, and He knows that we have needs, and He knows that we suffer. He sees our affliction, and He delights in displaying His power to the entire church by answering our prayers for healing, and praise God, sometimes He will. But you'll notice that this is not how any of the apostles or miracle workers in the Bible functioned. Every one of them did what they did individualistically. Now we pray for healing collectively. So there's a distinction between what is going on in our church today and what was taking place in the apostolic era. Regarding our text, we are going to see how these miracles that we have just read about ultimately changed the people of Ephesus and turned them to Christ in droves. Which brings us to a little bit more bizarre part of the text, the exorcism. It says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, uh, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. <clears throat> America has had at least a passing fascination with exorcism ever since 1973 when the movie The Exorcist released to terrified audiences everywhere. Unfortunately, 
movies and TV shows like that have far too much influence in shaping people's understandings of demons and the way they function than the Bible does. And this is one of the most bizarre and unusual examples of demonic encounter in the Bible. Let's take a little bit of a closer look at what's going on here. First, let's get to know these seven brothers. They're known as the seven sons of Sceva. Well, Sceva was not the high priest in Israel. He was one of the chief priests. He was one of the most influential and powerful leaders of Israel. From the gospel, we learn that the two things that primarily motivated these chief priests were power and money. Interestingly, that's what they were seeking to gain from this, notoriety and fame from uh, being able to exercise these demons, as well as money that they were charging for that purpose. Their love of prominence and money ultimately led the high priest in Jesus' day to send Christ to the cross. Well, today we see that they're also continuing to operate in a way that is seeking to undermine the church itself. Verse 13 indicates that Israel had begun to export a number of people who were trying to capitalize on the miracles taking place by the hands of the apostles, specifically Paul. And it is no coincidence then that these seven brothers found themselves so far away from Jerusalem. They're probably intentionally looking up the itinerary that Paul had and seeking to follow him as he makes his way through Asia Minor. They're hoping to pick off some of the attention that was going his way. Well, rarely do demons ever display themselves in observable ways, even in the Scriptures. Uh, Typically, they are incognito. But there are a few notable events in the Gospels when demonic activity was well-documented and understood to be the work of a demon rather than insanity or sinfulness of a man on his own. It's likely that these seven sons were often going around. It says they were itinerant uh, exorcists. It's their job. They go around charging people all over the place. Oh, he has a demon. Let me cast him out. Uh, The problem is a demon is often hidden inside of a person. You have no idea what's actually going on. So you can say to a parent, hey, your child is really bad. I think he has a demon. If you just give me a little bit of money, I will fix that for you. They pay you you a couple hundred bucks. You pray for the child. The child is still wild and kind of moving around like kids do, and you think, oh, something's happening, and then those seven brothers leave town, and your kid continues to operate the exact way he was operating before. It's hard to verify whether or not something has actually occurred. But what takes place here is they actually come face-to-face with somebody who truly was demon-possessed, and the demon acknowledged that he had an awareness of Jesus, he knew about Paul, but he had no idea who they were. Now, this can be abused. You have to be very careful here. Uh, I actually grew up in a church that taught, you need to be so powerful in the Lord that everybody, even in the demon world, knows who you are. Well, that is not the point of this text. Don't think about it in terms of how famous Jesus and Paul were in the ranks of Satan's army. The point that the demon is making is not that they were famous, but that they had authority. Jesus had direct authority because he's God. Paul had been given authority, had been given power to carry out these actions because he was an apostle and a believer of Christ. These seven sons of Sceva, they're not God and they're not apostles, they're not even Christians. So what was the result? Well, it would be better for them to be trapped in a room with a hungry tiger than what took place in this gathering. This demon beat them senseless and and beat them so bad they ran out naked. Now, knowing this exorcist type, it's likely that what took place with this demon-possessed man was they had collected a small mass or small crowd of people who gathered outside of this guy's house, and when they went inside to heal him, 
And then they heard the sounds, they heard the noises, and then saw these seven men run out screaming. It would have been incredibly shameful for them. They would have been incredibly embarrassed and humiliated as they ran out with their naked and bloodied failures of bodies running away from this demon. Uh, Once again, we should ask ourselves, is this normal? Is this normative for the church? Well, obviously, these seven men could not cast out demons, but can we? Are we able to? Should we even try? Well, allow me to answer this question in a roundabout way. Let's consider another time that we hear about people casting out demons in the Bible. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out 72 disciples to preach about him throughout the uh, cities and towns in Israel. And when they came back, they were incredibly excited by the power that Jesus had given them. They were specifically excited about the fact that they were able to cast out demons. Here's what Jesus says to them. Or here's what they said to Jesus. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Basically saying, yeah, I've been in this casting out business like since Adam and Eve. You know, like this has been a long time for me. And then continues and says, behold, I have given you power and I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. And just in case there's any confusion, he repeats it. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Like, that should not be your focus, guys. Your focus should be that you are saved. Now, from this, I want to take away two things. First, Christians cannot be harmed by demons. They cannot possess you. They cannot force you to do anything against your will. At the very worst, the Lord may allow them to cause you to suffer for a time, like Job. But even in that, God's gracious hand is at work, causing all things to work together for your good and His glory. So don't be afraid of demons. But secondly, we are not supposed to rejoice over having power over demons. There's something much better that we rejoice in. We rejoice that our names are written in heaven. The New Testament never gives the church directions about how to perform an exorcism. It tells us how to preach the gospel. What do we do? We preach the gospel. If you really want somebody to be free from demonic oppression, tell them about Jesus Christ. Let me explain it another way. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 43 through 44, we find out what happens if you cast a demon out of someone who is not a believer in Christ. Jesus says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, And put in order, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. In other words, casting out demons from someone literally has no value at all unless the Lord takes up residence in their heart. There may be a moment of temporary relief, but that person is far worse off in the long run because if the demon leaves and the Holy Spirit does not move in, the demon's going to move right back in with more alongside. So practically, how do we battle with the demonic realm? We preach the gospel. We trust in Christ. We tell people about Jesus. We seek to persuade and convince them of the truth of the scriptures. We pray for their salvation. And if they trust in Christ, darkness must flee. What has light to do with darkness? 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. 
For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So what do we need to do with this aspect of exorcism? You continue living faithfully as a Christian and let God sort out what's going on behind the scenes in the spiritual world. The third point that we want to look at today, the third scene, as it were, is how everyone reacts to this. We want to see the revival. We finally arrive at the punchline of the text. Here we see exactly why God chose to work in this unusual, unordinary manner. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, it says, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now, this is really interesting because the seven sons of Sceva, well, they attempted to invoke the name of Jesus, but they were soundly defeated. What God was doing there was very clear. He was making a distinction between the real and the fake. He was authenticating the message of the gospel and destroying whatever money-making scheme was being done by these Sceva boys. Why would the fear of God spread? Because the only people who were protected from the evil spirits were those who trusted in the message that Paul was preaching about God who protects his people. Now, it's really clear that pagan cult practices were common in Ephesus by the reaction of those who turned to Christ. Verse 18 says, Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. We live in a time when books are cheaper than they have ever been. Just a couple years ago, I read an article called Books Should Cost More Than Burritos. And it was a compelling read. It was all about the breakdown of everybody who gets a little cut of that $10 that you pay for the paperback in the store or from Amazon. And they give an example of how in the ancient days, books were incredibly expensive. The average book would cost more than two months' wages. Now, I did the math as of yesterday's exchange rate and found that the value of these books that they burned, these 50,000 pieces of silver, would have estimated in our dollars today $139,721.88. That's a lot of money. These people could have taken those books, and they certainly, they probably wouldn't have gotten that much, but they would have gotten some money on the used book market in their city. But instead, they did the right thing, and they burned them. This is incredibly instructive for those who turn to Christ in any age. Not that we need to go start a bonfire in the middle of Levittown, but to say that we should be quick to eliminate from our lives any of the ungodly practices that we held to before knowing Christ. It should be obvious to those around you that the things that you formerly loved, the things that you invested in, the things that you practiced that were evil are now an offense to you because they are an offense to the God that you serve and they don't have a place in your life any longer. The believers in Ephesus found what they had been looking for in those books of magic. They certainly wanted to find power and control and connections to the spiritual realm, but they were looking in all of the wrong places. Maybe you're not into the occult. Uh, Maybe you were looking for power or satisfaction in some of the wrong places, though. Perhaps there are books that you need to eliminate from your library, but more likely what you need to eliminate from your life are movies or television shows that are unhelpful to your sanctification, or pornography and drunkenness and occult practices, drug abuse, marital infidelity. Things like that have no place in the life of a Christian. If those things are persisting, maybe it's time for you to have a figurative bonfire in your life. 
Genuine repentance looks like taking radical steps, even if they are costly, to walk in the light as he is in the light. The kingdom of God expanded rapidly. It expanded powerfully in Ephesus. And the evidence that God was working has much less to do with the momentary miracles or erroneous exorcism and has everything to do with the fact that Jesus was received and honored and revered to such an extent that it radically transformed the lives of the people in that city. How do we know that God was really doing a work there? Because people got saved. People were transformed. People lived for Christ. May God in his great kindness do a work like that here in our city, here in Levittown, here in Nassau County, and may it begin with us. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for the the message that you have given us today in Acts chapter 19. We ask, Lord, that you would cause us to know Christ so much better in seeing that he has power over the kingdom of evil and also to see that he has power to support and care for his children. And also, Lord, we ask that our hearts would respond appropriately, that we would turn away from wickedness, we would turn away from things that hinder our relationship with you, that we would turn away from anything that is deadly to our souls, and that we would give that that up, and we would figuratively burn it and have nothing more to do with it, so that we might honor you in all that we say and all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.